Hi there, it's Matt here, and welcome back to this fourth and final episode in the series all about sleep, infants, children, and teens. And a big hello to my dear friend and guest who rejoins me as the expert in this field. That's Dr. Craig Kanapari, who is the director of the Pediatric Sleep Center at Yale Medical School. And so far, we've spoken with Craig about sleep in infants, sleep in children, and today we're going to speak about that most wonderful of all forms of hominid life, which is called the teenager. (laughs) And I think, firstly, quick definitions. What do we term as preteen and teen in terms of age ranges, Craig? The preteen definition is a little bit slippery. I'd say it's usually 11 to 13 if you're going to be basing on chronologic age. But we know that a lot of children nowadays may even start experiencing puberty, like adenarche, menarche, et cetera, at like age 10 or even a little bit earlier. So you're going to see some of the biological and hormonal changes even a little bit before that age range, potentially. Okay. And- As we're thinking about those two, or just even grouped together as teens, in the past we spoke about children and infants, and particularly for children, regularity and a particular time in bed and an opportunity to of sleep time or sleep window opportunity time is one of the best determinants of how much sleep that they're going to get. Now. Putting all societal forces aside for a second regarding teens, and we'll get to those because they are non-trivial and rather nefarious, what is perhaps one of the single most influential factors that will determine how much sleep a teenager would typically obtain, irrespective of their sleep need, or perhaps what is the most clear determinant that you know of of sleep duration in a teen? Yeah, it is almost exclusively wake time. And the reason is, mm, okay. um, as children move into adolescence, think of our school-age kids who are just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed every morning. They're coming to your room, waking you up before you've had your cup of coffee. But when puberty starts, all of a sudden, their natural sleep period, their biological clock, will shift later by about two to three hours during the course of adolescence. So all of a sudden, you had a child who would happily go to bed at 8 o'clock and then sleep till 6 the next day, and you'll notice them just not being quite ready to go down, staying up later and later, and then all of a sudden, one day, you're getting them up for junior high and driving them to school because they missed the bus. And this really happens to all teenagers. Again, if you had a a child as an extreme morning type, you're going to be excited and maybe not need to worry about this too much. But the majority of teens are running around a little bit sleep deprived all the time. Yeah. And by the way, this is not teens trying to be punk rock rebellious and they're just forcing themselves to stay awake longer into the night just as a way to push back against their parents and exert some expressional control by way of saying, look, now I know two years ago I used to be sleepy at eight, well, now I'm not going to go to bed until 10. I'm still sleepy, but no, they're genuinely not sleepy. It's a biological shift. It's not their fault. It is biologically, we know, determined, and we understand how and why it's determined. It's not their fault. 
it's a natural part of their biology. And so is there a risk of taking a teenager who now has a natural rhythm shift forward in time where they're wanting to go to bed later and wake up later to trying to get them into bed at the same time and therefore they're masquerading almost as sleep onset insomnia because they're lying there thinking well my parent just stuffed me in bed I can't fall asleep and I don't know why I used to be able to and I've got insomnia do they have insomnia or do they just have a mismatch between when they're getting forced to try and sleep and their natural biological tendency well, I definitely have seen parents who have been very strict and expecting their 16-year-old to go to bed at like 8.30. And it can lead to a lot of conflict. And like you've talked about insomnia, the the issue of having an inappropriate sleep opportunity really can be what they call a perpetuating factor in insomnia. I think it definitely can lead to a lot of conflict in households if parents don't recognize this. Because even if your child does everything right, they're generally not going to be able to fall asleep at like 830 at night, even though if you do the math, right? Like, so like, say your teenager has to get up at six in the morning to catch the bus, but they're going to get nine hours of sleep. They have to be not in bed at 9 p.m., but asleep by 9 p.m. So here's where we're kind of getting into, I think we're going to talk a little bit, a little bit later on, Matt, which is the real disconnect too between when school starts and when teenagers actually need to sleep. And tell me then, I mean, in some ways it plays into that and we'll hold off on that for a second, but I'd still want to bring this topic up. What is the greatest sort of mortal threat to the sleep of a teen in terms of their weekly sleep schedule? What would you say that parents, if there's a single take home to say, okay, this is a real threat. This is something you need to look out for, for your teenager, if you've got their best interests at heart in terms of sleep. What would you say is perhaps the single greatest threats to their sleep? Well, for me, it's it's inappropriately early high school start times. Man, this is one of my hobby horses, right? Um, yeah, you and me both. <laughs> so, so I know in California, uh, you guys actually, I think it was this fall that the new law was That's implemented. Right. Yeah, I mean, we lobbied to try and make it happen some years ago, and it got onto the desk of the then governor, Jerry Brown, but it wasn't signed, unfortunately, into law. And then- back at it, we and a collection of other people tried again. And this time it finally was signed into law by a different governor, Governor Gavin Newsom. New York is now on that same path. And I think a lot of the states you've spoken about before have basically been looking at each other thinking, who's going to make the first move? You know, it's kind of like, who draws first? And looking to others to shine a light on this. And I think it's been great that California has taken the initiative and I hope that is the first finger that flicks the domino cascade. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service and they come to your home as they do for me and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is happening inside of you regarding a host of different blood and metabolic and hormonal health metrics. What I also like is that in addition to the results, they then provide you with a personalized set of recommended, I guess, sort of lifestyle changes and suggestions to better optimize your health as a consequence of what those results were for you, that unique snowflake. So you can use the link insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker 
and you will get a healthy discount from your purchase. So again, that is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. Tell me more about how you think of this issue, why it's a problem, what it leads to in terms of this thing that we call social jet lag, and what's the evidence? Why should we be so up in arms as both you and I are? So a couple of definitions. Well, a definition I'd say is social jet lag is a term that was coined by a, uh, a circadian scientist named Till Ronenberg. And it kind of reflects the idea of if you have a, a weekday and a weekend schedule that is drastically different. And most of our teenagers, I live here in Connecticut. So I say to parents, well, your child lives on California time on the weekends, right? Like stays up three hours later, gets up three or four hours later on Saturday and Sunday. But if your child is slept till noon, the chances of him or her being able to fall asleep easily on Sunday night and the time to get enough sleep is essentially nil. And we know that that's, you know, if anyone's experienced jet lag, it's unpleasant. A good rule of thumb, it takes an hour to adjust to your new schedule. So imagine your so Every day you're in a new time zone, exactly. you would just by only one hour. Okay. It's not even pathological to have most of my kids here with a three-hour shift on the weekends. A lot of the kids I say, it's a five-hour shift. So they're on a Hawaii time. Jeez. So imagine they are essentially sleep deprived and out of sync till Friday of a given week. And then the cycle starts again. And, and so essentially it's your teens at best are flying back and forth from New York to California every weekend. And at worst, they're flying all the way to Hawaii <laughs> and back every weekend. That is torture on our biology, let alone our psychology. You know, and it's interesting that I have advocated quite a lot for this around the state of Connecticut, and we're very preliminarily looking at a bill here as well. And there are a couple of stereotypes about teenagers that I just kind of want to point out. The first is that so many teen stereotypes are actually related to sleep deprivation, right? When we think about argumentativeness, emotional ability, poor impulse control, yeah, some of that is just being a teenager. Terrible fashion choices. I don't know if I can blame that in the sleep, but... You're speaking to my friends from teenager yeah. years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, for A purple mohawk is so cool. But the idea that kids can just go to bed earlier, to which I'd say is like, okay, angry parent at the school board meeting, why don't you start going to bed at six and getting up at four in the morning and tell me how easy that is? The idea that kids are lazy. And also, this is important, the idea that the devices that they have are the reason they don't sleep. The fact is this phase shift was demonstrated by Mary Carskadden, who's a really probably the mother of adolescent sleep research, demonstrated this work in the 90s. There were no smartphones, cell phones, Xboxes, anything like that then. This is a biological process. Those teens were basically wanting to go to bed late, wake up late, were sleeping in at the weekend, you know, all of that was happening long before any of this technology stuff came along. Now, that's not to say I think that you and I suggest that these devices haven't had some relationship to an altered sleep. Absolutely. And I think teenagers do need to take ownership of this, right? And I think parents as well need to model appropriate behavior. Like, for example, 
nobody should have their cell phone in their room at night. You know, sometimes I've got to take a pass on this, though I don't like it because I'm on call for work. Really, I, I talk with my teenage patients and they just can't imagine missing a text in the middle of the night. I'm like, are you getting a call from the president or something? You know, come on. It's going to be fine. I just want to quickly highlight a recent study, which was looking at the risk. Like who was really struggling with screen use? And this was published this year. I'm not sure what the group was out of. The lead author was Moreno. And this was more looking at what teenagers were struggling more around device use. And they found that the at-risk teens had their own devices They may have had rules around screen time, but not rules around content or place. They were allowed to have their phones in their rooms. And there was also a strong association with depression, anxiety, loneliness, and body image issues. So teenagers with mental health issues are especially vulnerable to having unhealthy relationships with technology. In this study, that was about 30% of kids. So I'd say that about 60% of kids are actually doing better than we think. But I'd say it's probably more likely that parents or teens are listening to this. I'd say parents, it's really important to you to um, have conversations with your children about healthy sleep practices, but also healthy relationships with technology. It's something we all struggle with, however. I think it is, you know, and I think Michael Grenner has a great rule regarding phones in the bedroom, which is that, look, that genie is out of the bottle and it's probably not going back in anytime soon. But if you absolutely necessarily non-negotiably have to take your phone into the bedroom, you can only use it standing up. (laughs) And, you know, know, seven minutes of standing, you think, I'm just going to sit down on the bed. Well, as soon as you sit down, that's it. You're done. Phone gets put away. Looking at the evidence in adults and teenagers, there was this worry regarding blue light from screens and melatonin blocking. Now, there's some evidence for that, I think. But the evidence becomes ever weaker on that front. However, I think that's not to say that these devices aren't sleep disruptive. I think the sleep disruptive part of them potentially is present, but it may be less due to the light. It's more about the fact that these devices are attention currency capturing masters, that what they are designed to do is engage you and not let you go. And it's the activating influence of those devices in the bedroom that in some ways could be masking inherent sleepiness in teenagers, that those teenagers, if there was a magnetic blast and all electrical devices got knocked out, that they would actually be sleepy and they could easily fall asleep. But the device is going to alert them and engage them and keep them awake for the next hour. And they're not going to feel the sleepiness because the device is hitting the mute button on the sleepiness by activating them. And so I do think there is some recognition that the devices still have an impact, even if the blue light is not as powerful as we thought. But I think what you're saying too is that get somewhat comfortable with this. It's probably not going to go away anytime soon. There are groups that are at risk though. Kids with ADHD we know are going to be more vulnerable, including those perhaps also with autism. And just have a conversation around sleep education and clear rules if you can. Does that sound about right to you, do you think? Absolutely. I think one thing when we're talking about the the start time issue is so important to to get across to people. When we're talking about chronic sleep deprivation in teens, how bad that is. Because a lot of parents will say to me, be like, well, I had to get up early too. So why can't my kid do it? They need to toughen up, right? 
And we know that there are really three domains of significant effect for chronic sleep deprivation in teens. The first is academic. And this is more significant in kids that are maybe a little bit more vulnerable uh, socioeconomically. We know that if you have schools start later in districts where the kids are underperforming, the graduation rate improves, SAT scores improve, GPAs improve, and you have less tardiness and missed days. In Let's say if you're in a district like Palo Alto, you're going to not see as many of those benefits from a later start time. But there are medical effects to chronic sleep deprivation too, which I know, Matt, you've talked about. One I really want to highlight though for teenagers is the risk of auto accidents. We know that teenagers are not great drivers anyway. And when you add sleep deprivation into the mix, it can be absolutely deadly. There was a study by Verona looking at two adjacent counties in Maryland. One district started at 8.30, one started at 7.30. And the incidence of accidents was usually driving to school and coming home from school. And it was twice as high in the district that where things started earlier. Even if you don't have a teenager who's driving, that still affects you. They can still crash into you. So I think that is a tremendously impactful thing to be aware of. And the final thing is the psychological effect. We know the teens that are sleep deprived, they don't make good decisions. They struggle more with depression and anxiety. They have less impulse control. I mean, these are areas they struggle anyway. Risk-taking, sensation-seeking, all of those things that parents worry about with their teens. You know, one thing that struck me, that the first district to actually move start times later was Edina, Minnesota. All this great research came out of there. And then Minneapolis, I think, was the first large municipality to have a later start time. And I saw Kenneth Dragseth, who was the school superintendent, speak there. And he talked about after they made this change, there was less trash in the hallways, the kids were calmer, and the parents, even who were against it, thanked him. They're like, you have given me my kid back because now in the morning we have time to chat. They're much less difficult to deal with. They're much happier. So it's not just the health benefits. It's also just helping them be, I think you can't really be a happy person if your sleep is bad. I think that's the critical thing. The lunacy of this is not lost on me. And just to come back to that life critical, like life-saving benefit that happens when you delay school start times. I think another good example happened in Teton County in Wyoming, and they shifted their school start times from I think it was around 7.35 in the morning to 8.55. And the only thing more remarkable than the extra one hour of sleep I think those kids reported getting was the dropping road traffic accidents. And I think in 16 to 18-year-olds, the reduction in road traffic accidents that following year was 70%, 7-0. And to put that in context, the advent of ABS technology in cars, that dropped accident rates by about 25%. It was deemed a revolution. Well, here is the simple biological factor of giving kids the chance to sleep that will drop accident rates by 70%. You know, in my mind, Craig, if our goal as educators truly is to educate and not risk lives in the process, then I think we are failing our children in the most spectacular manner with this incessant model of early school start times. To me, if you look at all of the data you've just described, it's a very simple truth. When sleep is abundant, minds flourish. And when it's not, they don't. I think the RAND Corporation did a study showing that 
this intervention is also very cost effective. The great thing about this is it it raises all ships, right? Like every child benefits when this happens. And there's some, look, there's some complexity to the implementation we don't necessarily want to get into. And you move one school time in a district, you're going to be affecting the elementary schoolers, et cetera, too. But there are ways to do this where everyone benefits and realizes these benefits. And compared to like, say, getting lights on a sports field, which benefits some athletes, but not others, or hiring a new computer science teacher, these things are all important, but later start times will benefit every adolescent in your district. It's kind of a no-brainer, and people in public health who look at this, they're like, this is the most unambiguous benefit to any sort of public health intervention that people have seen. It's just really difficult to change bell times, because bell times That's kind right. of are the tempo I'm- of every community. Right. And I don't think either of that, you know, you and I, we can preach from the pulpit, but I'm also not trivializing the difficulty that is getting kids to school at later times. Parents have to be out of the house. They've got their own work schedules. You know, you've got single parents, they're working early shifts, they're working night. You know, there's immeasurable number of difficulty that surrounds this topic. And I appreciate that. And I want to be so sensitive to it. But I also want to perhaps just note that it is a hard thing to solve. It really is a very hard thing. We've also put people on the moon, though, so I think we can do this. This podcast is supported by Athletic Greens. Now, Athletic Greens is a comprehensive nutritional drink, and it contains countless different health components, Let me stop there. I say countless. I actually know the company pretty well, and I know how the product is made. And I believe at last count, it's over 75 different vitamins and minerals and probiotics, prebiotics, and other whole food source nutrients. And you consume it every day. And I do drink Athletic Greens. And for the record, I buy my own supply because of all of the obvious sort of integrity trappings that come with free product, and I just don't want to get into that. So as I said, I know the company really quite well, including their stellar CEO, and I trust the creation and their manufacturing procedures. They've got all of the correct stamps, things like TGA and GMP stamps. Basically, they're rigorous. So anyway, if you are mindful of your health, then you may want to check them out at the link, which is athleticgreens.com forward slash Matt Walker. And if you use that link, you'll get some money off your first order and also some free travel packs. So that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Matt Walker. Let me circle back around to just a final few topics, Craig. We mentioned previously in our episode on children, some of the red flags when things are concerning and some of the disorders and conditions that children can experience with both sleep disorders and disorders that can impact sleep. You and I have both written about this in the past. Help me understand better the relationship between perhaps, maybe we could start with the elephant in the room, which is sleep, teens, and ADHD both in terms of masquerading as ADHD when kids are not getting enough sleep, but kids who do have ADHD and medication, you see this and interact with this all of the time. 
as the expert, help me better understand that topic? It can be really difficult to unravel this in some kids because attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is also associated with issues with sleep onset and maintenance. The flip side is, is that people that are sleep deprived or have fragmented sleep also have issues with attention and behavioral regulation. I think one other thing that you had mentioned to me offline too was the effect of some of these medications as well. Often stimulants are used in the management of ADHD, and clearly they can have an effect on nighttime sleep if not dosed appropriately or dosed too late in the day. What I would say to a parent of a child where they're worried about their child's attention would certainly be to see their pediatrician to actually look at their child's sleep duration. And again, for the reasons we talked about, most teens are not getting enough sleep at night. To be frank, the prevalence of kids getting less than eight hours of sleep at night is something like 60 or 70% of teenagers. If it's really out of out of range, if you have kids going to bed at midnight or one in the morning, it's worth addressing. Likewise, if you have a child that's snoring, assessing that. I see a lot of kids where we're trying to ascertain being like, is there a separate sleep disorder contributing to this? But upstream of that, sitting with the pediatrician and being like, let's talk about my child's sleep schedule. It has to be part of the conversation. So that's a little bit about ADHD, medication, and insufficient sleep. Maybe the last thing I I want to talk about is essentially the opposite end of that spectrum, which is not too little sleep, but instead the idea of excessive sleep or what we call in clinical terms, hypersomnia, hyper meaning obviously increased or elevated somnia being from the Roman Greek mythological root of somnus, meaning sleep. Is hypersomnia a thing in teens or even kids? And if so, what causes it? Should parents be concerned? Tell me about that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, hypersomnia, it's funny, like in my world, we're often differentiating between fatigue and sleepiness. So sleepiness is an increased propensity to fall asleep, meaning that in situations where you're kind of bored, you may fall asleep. Whereas fatigue is a lack of energy. It could be issues with mood, anxiety, depression, et cetera. So hypersomnia is a pretty easy symptom to understand. It's important to recognize that if someone is sleepy, they're not learning. If you are dozing off in class, you are literally incapable of hearing or retaining information that is being presented to you. So when we talk about hypersomnia in kids, we've talked a lot about chronic sleep curtailment, which there are significant structural reasons for this. Um, Disorders of sleep fragmentation and things like sleep apnea can be causes. We've talked about those as well. I want to highlight two other groups. One would be children with circadian disorders. Most commonly, that's delayed sleep phase where a child is falling asleep incredibly late and having trouble making it to school. Think a child can't fall asleep till three or four in the morning, is missing school every day. But if they can sleep on their natural schedule, they are not sleepy, they're functioning well. That requires some work with the sleep physician to kind of entrain them to a more appropriate schedule. Disorders of increased sleep drive. This can certainly be caused by many medications, specifically psychiatric medications. But I also just want to mention to close um, hypersomnia disorders. And here's the reason why. Narcolepsy is the most common hypersomnia disorder. And there is often a lag time between the presentation of symptoms, which is often in early adolescence, and the time of diagnosis. Why does this matter? Imagine if you've gone through high school, your grades were not what you wanted them to be, 
everyone was telling you were lazy because you were sleeping all the time. You didn't perform well in college. Maybe you drop out of college and then 10 years later, you find out you actually have narcolepsy. I have a lot of patients with narcolepsy and it is manageable with, with medications. And we can actually have children with narcolepsy function normally. But the key is recognizing that it's a possibility and testing for it. There are other less common disorders like idiopathic hypersomnia. There's post-concussive hypersomnia. So if your child has had a concussion during a sports event, they might actually be sleepy for six to 12 months, believe it or not, afterwards. And there's an extraordinarily rare disorder called Klein-Levin syndrome, which is cyclic hypersomnia. Very interesting, but quite rare. But I think the take-home I would have for parents is if your child is falling asleep in school, it is definitely worthy of your attention, worth working with your pediatrician and maybe a sleep expert to unpack this a little bit. I've definitely had children that we've undiagnosed with issues like depression, anxiety, et cetera, when we've diagnosed them with narcolepsy. If your child is struggling, don't forget about sleep because it is such an important contributor to their health, well-being, and ability to perform to the extent of their abilities. Oh, Craig, you are an absolute gem. Thank you. Thank you for all the time that you've taken across these episodes to give the knowledge, dispense it. Folks, if you would like to learn more about Craig, please just go over to his website, drcraigcanapari.com. Again, it will be in the show notes. You can also check out his book. You'll find links there. But the website is also fantastic, folks. It's got such a vast wealth of blog posts and information. For me, it is my go-to. I know some people will say that on the podcast uh, with the guests. Oh, he is the person or she's the person that's my go-to. No, genuinely, when I have questions regarding this, that, or the other, regarding anything to do with infancy all the way to teens for sleep, it's Craig's site that I go to. Craig, thank you again for being a guest on the show. Oh, thank you. That is very kind. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all the work you've done. Bringing the importance of sleep forward to people is really changing people's lives. So it's wonderful work you're doing. Thank you. Well, I've done it inelegantly and stumbled many times along the way, but you have not done that. You've always been elegant. Craig, thank you so much for your time. And to the listener, thank you again for tuning in to these episodes. I am sure they've been actionable and useful if you are a parent. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the next episode. Until then, take care. And goodbye for now.